Let's continue in prayer. God, we do look to you. And we, uh, we understand that we can't be together, but we also know our unity is in you and that we are one in you and that we are near to one another because we're near to you. And as we worship you, uh, we now pray that you'd pour out your Holy Spirit. Bind us to Jesus Christ. Bind us to one another. Pour out your Holy Spirit because we're about to open the written word and we need to hear from you. We need to hear the voice of our good shepherd speaking truth into our lives. And so we pray that as we read your written word together, you would encounter us through the living word. Jesus himself would come and speak. In his name we pray, amen. Well, hello, uh, my name is George Hinman. I wanna greet those of you who are worshiping with us in this very unusual way. I wanna greet those of you from Westside Presbyterian Church, University Presbyterian Church, and then our many uh, friends, family, and neighbors just around the world. Thank you for worshiping Jesus together with us. Uh, it's a lonely, empty room that we're in here, but many of you have been letting us know either through the comment section uh, as we do this live stream or through emails that have been coming in this week that you are connecting to Jesus Christ through our worship. Uh, you are connecting uh, with neighbors and that our mission continues. I'm so grateful to, to learn about that. Uh, I uh, saw last week that we had almost twice the number of views during our live stream than our typical worship attendance this time of year, which is just so encouraging. It tells us that God is doing something and uh, we wanna be a part of it together with you. So uh, stay in touch with us. This week, we're asking the question, what is God doing on a cross? On a cross. Remember, crucifixion is a form of execution. In that sense, it's like a stoning. It's like a, uh, a beheading. It's like a lynching. It's a horrible, horrible image, and it's supposed to be punishment for a crime. We seem to think of it as a religious symbol. But the Fleming Rutledge, this author we're reading together, says, you know what? The cross of Jesus Christ is an unrepeatable event that calls all religion into question. In fact, there's nothing religious about it, she's saying. So we're going to ask ourselves, what is God doing here? What does the cross of Jesus Christ mean for our world? What does it mean for us? What does it mean for me? What does it mean for you? And what happens to us uh, when we believe it? Well, we're using as kind of a roadmap to the cross this very famous old stained glass window. It's, uh, it's beautiful. In week one, we explored the face of the one on the cross. We discovered that the cross is an act of God's love. In week two, we looked at the caption that's here, you do it to me. And we discovered that the cross of Jesus is an act of God's forgiveness. Now, this love is not a sentimental love. It's not a, um, a squishy kind of hallmark sort of love. It's gritty, it's raw, it's tough love. And when we see it in the face of our Savior, Jesus Christ, it frees us to confess our sin. I got an email from one of you that, and I got permission to, to share it, and I'd like to read it with you. It gives a picture of the power of this confession at the foot of the cross. One of our members writes, as I asked the Lord to show me my sins in particular, I became aware that he often did it around 3 a.m. in the morning. A memory would surface that I had not thought of in years. 
At first, confessions came naturally, probably because I wanted to go back to sleep. Then it continued, night after night. I was almost sorry that I'd asked this. Yet as I continued to confess, I became aware that the showing of my sins never came with a sense of shame or condemnation. It became a freeing experience to be relieved of things that although forgotten by me consciously tended to color my thinking and behavior throughout the years, they were like a filter that made me see, feel, and do things that were not freeing and loving for me nor for the people around me. Isn't that great? That's the power of cross at, at, at work in our lives as we come and kneel before this image. So today we want to look at Jesus' left hand, your right. I want to ask you just to think for a moment. What do you see here? What do you think the artist is trying to communicate? Just, just consider this left hand of Jesus on the cross. What do you notice? You notice that it's open. It's kind of an aspect of invitation. Notice that it's pointing forward suggestive of a better future. Uh, I noticed that it's a little bit like the Vertuvian man, you know, Leonardo da Vinci's uh, sketch of this Greek ideal, points to the ideal world, the harmonious world, the world the way it is meant to be. When we talk about the world the way it's meant to be, we're talking about justice. So today, I want to consider with you the cross as an act of divine justice. And our text is Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 through 14. I'd love for you to pull out a Bible or navigate over to one and uh, maybe follow along as we look at this text together. Uh, Galatians 3, chapter 13, verse 13 through 14. And I'm going to be reading in the New Revised Standard Version, but you read in your favorite version. And when we're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Listen carefully. We're reading God's holy word. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the spirit through faith. This is the word of the Lord. Grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Behind these words, there is a yearning for justice. You get a little bit of an echo of the book of Genesis. You know, Genesis back in the beginning, when the world is the way it's supposed to be, God starts with a blessing, this great benediction on human beings in a state of godliness. There's also an echo of a little bit later on after the world has fallen in Genesis 12 where God comes back and chooses a man, Abraham, and offers him a blessing and a promise that he should have a child who would bless all the nations of the earth or the Gentiles, as Paul says. It's just Gentiles, just another word for the nations of the earth. See, behind this, there's this yearning for justice, for the world to be the way it is meant to be. I think we all have this yearning, don't we? Vince Gilligan, who's the producer of uh, Breaking Bad, this well-known television show, did an interview with the New York Times. And he talked about his faith, and he's kind of a lapsed Catholic, but he says this, I find atheism just as hard to get my head around as I find fundamental Christianity. Why? Well, he says, 
I feel some sort of need for biblical atonement or justice or something. As you know, Breaking Bad is a story about a high school teacher with a good motive to leave his family with some money after he dies of cancer, but who becomes a very, very bad person. He becomes a hardened drug dealer and a murderer. And Vince Gilligan, the producer of this show, says, if there's a larger lesson to Breaking Bad, it's that actions have consequences. Apparently, Gilligan isn't ready to become a Christian, but he can't quite shake his atheism. This is where his faith is coming in. Why? Because in his view, there just has to be some kind of what he calls cosmic justice. He tells the New York Times, his girlfriend says, I want to believe there's a heaven, but I can't not believe that there's a hell. It's yearning. It's a yearning for justice. It's kind of universal, and it's because it's universal that it points many of us to the existence of God. Well, there's a yearning for justice behind this window as well. If you've been following with us, you know that this is called the Wales Window of Alabama. It was given by the people of Wales to 16th Street Baptist Church in Alabama, Montgomery, following the racially motivated bombing of the church, 1963, and the tragic death of four African-American children. Now, in 1963, in Alabama, any justice that was going to happen following this terrorist attack was a long time coming. There were four men who did it, principally, four white men, and it would be only a month later that one of them would be brought before the bench, and he was only fined $100 and then released. $100 for transporting dynamite and then released. Now, it would be years before anything more would happen. Not because the FBI didn't know who committed the crime. They knew. Not because the evidence wasn't there. It was but because of racism. The, the, the judicial system overlooked the crime that was committed, and in this case would just sit there for years, until the 1970s, it would be reactivated, and it wouldn't be resolved until 2002. I want you just to think about that. How does that make you feel? How do you respond to that emotionally? For me, outrage is horrifying. Here's, here are four bombers who are protected from the law by the law. You and I want to live in a world where actions have consequences. We believe in justice. If you're like me, you experience it on the freeway. Anytime somebody cuts in front of you, you're like, outrage, what? But more seriously, when you see the face of a war-torn child in Syria, are you kidding me, getting bombed? When you think about a swirl of plastic in the Pacific Ocean, the, the, the size of the state of Texas, are you kidding me? This, is, this makes out, it's outrage. Because there's this yearning for what Vince Gilligan calls cosmic justice. And by the way, that yearning is evidence that somewhere it exists, that it's a real thing that, that we all are experiencing and, and, and wanting. And it does exist, the Bible tells us. It exists because it first exists in the heart of the God who made everything and in whose image we are made. So the left hand here of our Savior on the cross invites us to believe in justice. And St. Paul offers us encouragement here in Galatians 3. See, what he's saying essentially is that God has a plan 
to make the world right. He's got a plan. If we look earlier in Galatians 3.8, Paul talks about this plan. He says that the scripture foresaw, that's the plan, the scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles. Remember, we're Gentiles, this means nation. That God would justify the nations. Uh, This is a similar thing to what he said earlier in Romans chapter four, verse five. He refers to God as the one who justifies the ungodly, who justifies the ungodly. Now, that word justify, what does that mean? What does it mean? Well, it really means to make something right. The word justify is really an important word. It's not that easy to translate, but it's one of the great words of the Bible, justify. It refers to righteousness. It refers to right relationship. It refers to justice. Fleming Rutledge, this author we're reading, writes about the word justify, and she says uh, uh, we really ought to translate it rectify. That's a good translation rectify. And where you see justification, it'd be rectification. Why? Well, the word rectify comes from two Latin words, uh, meaning to make right. Rectus, right, and ficare, make. So to rectify is to make right. So this is what Paul's saying. God rectifies, will rectify the nations. God rectifies the ungodly, will rectify the ungodly. Fleming Rutledge again, she says, it's much more like a verb than a noun because it refers to the power of God to make right what has been wrong. She says that in and of itself sounds inoffensive, but the radical message underlying it and the one we resist is that God does this right making in spite of our resistance. Reverend Childs, the great Old Testament scholar writes, righteousness or justice in the Old Testament is not some ontological state of cosmic harmony, but an event inaugurated by God's intervention in the world for the sake of humanity and rendered according to the divine word will. God is intervening in history, in Jesus Christ, to make the world right, to to make it what it's meant to be to justify. And Paul's saying, there's a plan here. This is the plan. The scripture has told us from long ago that this is the plan now being fulfilled in our day, Paul's saying. God's rectifying, making the world right. This is cosmic justice. This is what Vince Gilligan is yearning for, cosmic justice. This is what the people of Birmingham, Alabama, are yearning for, cosmic justice. But the question is, how do we get it? How does it come? How? Well, again, the left hand invites us to the cross. And here's the point today. The cross of Jesus is God's decisive act of cosmic justice. The cross. Notice the way Paul's speaking here in Galatians 3. We read it earlier. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That's the cross. Now, Galatians 3 is a wonderful, rich passage, but it's also very intricate and complicated. You'll want to spend time in your small group to explore the logic. But I just, all I have time for now is to give you a quick sort of summary in four points, because you could reduce his argument to four points. So let me just run through these. Uh, this is the apostle's argument in Galatians 3, the wider context. What he says, first of all, we have a universal problem. We're all under the curse of God's law, all of us. That's what he's saying. And then the second point in his argument is that the law can't fix the problem. Actually, it only makes the curse worse. 
Third point is that God has solved the problem on the cross. That God takes the, cro- the, the curse upon himself. He disarms it. And then fourth, Paul's arguing, the cross is the ultimate source of blessing. The cross will make the world right. See, that's the, that's the, the logic that Paul's going for in this chapter. And, and before we look at the cross in particular, I just want to back up and, and, and draw out two important implications for us, really important implications. So give me a couple minutes with each of these. The first is this. Make sure you hear this right. God's forgiveness is not enough. Now, it's important. It's essential. But it's not enough. God's forgiveness is not enough to explain what God has done in the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, if you were listening last week or you go back and hear it again, I, I said I could summarize my message in three words. You are forgiven. So in it, that's huge. That's so important. That's the power of God in our lives to receive forgiveness. But it's not enough to explain the fullness of what God has done on the cross. Look, lots of people look at the cross of Jesus and they go, oh good, I'm forgiven. And then they walk away and they go live like hell. And I want to tell you, you can't do that if you're looking at the real cross. The the cross is not a sign of amnesty. You're forgiven and you just do whatever you please. That's That's not how it works. That's not the power of God. In 1989, a nun named Diana Ortiz was abducted and tortured in Guatemala. And uh, when she escaped, everyone wanted to know, so have you forgiven your torturers? And they just assumed that a Christian should forgive and then move on. But Sister Ortiz said this. She said, let me introduce a word into the discussion. The word is impunity. Impunity. It's a word of considerable importance to survivors. Survivors seek justice. That is accountability. Survivors, she's saying, need to know that there will be consequences for bad actions and that the world won't be left the way it is. She says, let me introduce the word impunity into the conversation. Impunity means the absence of consequence, the absence of punishment. So again, we're we're back at... uh, Vince Gilligan's girlfriend, she says, I may not be much of a believer, but I can tell you this, I believe in hell because I believe that there must be a consequence for the likes of Paul Pod, Idi Amin, Bashar al-Assad, Harvey Weinstein, Bull Connor in Birmingham. We can't just have bombers walking around the city who kind of look at the cross and go, oh yeah, I'm forgiven, and then keep doing what they're doing, saying, I'm good. No, the cross says, you're not good. Your racism, is, your racism is not good. The, the social structures in this city that allow bombers to hide in plain sight, not good. White churches that condone this activity, not good. No, there is no impunity at the cross of Jesus Christ. So you see, the cross of Jesus isn't just about forgiveness. It's calling us to respond the broken places in the world. It calls us to justice. And and, and friends, we must engage in the work of justice. The cross tells us that human rights matter, that the environment matters, that criminal justice matters, food insecurity matters. There is no impunity at the cross of Jesus Christ. So, So that's the first implication. God's forgiveness isn't enough. The other implication is 
our justice isn't enough. I have to say this because we have two impulses inside of ourselves. One impulse is to think, well, if it's all about God's forgiveness, I'm forgiven, I'll take all of that, and then I'll do nothing about the problems in the world. The other temptation is to think the cross of Jesus is all about justice, our justice, and I'm gonna go do everything and go fix the world, just run off and become an activist. And the cross of Jesus does not allow that either. It's interesting. If you catch the argument of the Apostle Paul, he's saying, you won't succeed with that. No matter how good your laws would be, they cannot bring justice. This is part of the argument Paul's making here in Galatians 3. Look again at verse 5. Galatians 3, 5. Paul says, does God work miracles among you by your doing the works of the law? No, is the applied answer. Galatians 3.11, here again, the answer, no. No one, he says, is rectified before God by the law. No one is rectified by God or before God by law. Now, he's talking about the law, God's law, but if God's law can't make the world right, why would we think that our human laws could do any better? So when we come to the cross, we come to something that tells us we have a desperate problem that requires a desperate solution. And here we see God's cosmic justice doing what we can't do through our earthly justice. Now, there's a place for our laws. There's a place for earthly justice. But look, there's something more that we need. We feel outraged when the world's not the way it should be. And that's the way we should feel. And we work for justice, and that's what we should do. But look, the Bible tells us in James chapter 1, verse 20, for example, human anger does not produce God's justice. Think about that. Maybe that'd be a good thing to, think, to remember next time we're posting in social media. Human anger doesn't produce God's justice. What human anger produces is retribution, revenge, Cycles of violence, generational conflict. The, 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 the great war to end all wars, how'd that go? No, it only drew new lines that were the provocations for the next wars. Palestine, the Balkans, Rwanda, Iraq, Afghanistan. And everyone who's fighting on both sides tells themselves they're fighting for justice. And the violence just continues. And the pain and the wound just deepens. And this is the curse this is the curse that Paul's talking about. God alone can make things right. That's why Paul uses Abraham as his main illustration. What a Jew would know about Abraham is that he had no human potential. Paul likes Abraham because Abraham couldn't do what God was saying God would do, which was bless all the nations. How, how could he do that? He, he, he didn't have a child. He was in a, a sterile marriage. He was too old to have a child. And yet God says, I'm promised to give you a son through whom all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. This is something I'm gonna do through you, but it's not something that you can do by yourself is the message. Our justice is not enough. And so we come back around to the cross. It's more than just forgiveness. And it's about God's work not ours. The cross of Jesus is God's decisive act of cosmic justice. 
Just for a moment, picture the Apostle Paul. Remember, he was the great Rabbi Saul of Tarsus. Uh, he was a Pharisee. And he was persecuting Christians. He was out there killing Christians. He was doing that not because they had the story about one who had been who had raised from the dead. Actually, the Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead. He was doing that because there were a group of people who were running around talking about a crucified Messiah. A crucified Messiah, that's absolutely impossible for a Pharisaical rabbi to believe in. That's, that's an outrage. That's offensive, he, he, would, he would say. And so he's trying to stamp out this cult. Until one day, the crucified Messiah, risen from the dead, shows up. And now Saul changes. Now we picture Paul before the cross of Jesus Christ. Picture him there kneeling like we do. What does it mean? He's confused. He's offended. He's outraged. What does he do? Well, he pulls out his Bible. Uh, we call it the Old Testament, the, 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 the Pentateuch, the first five chapters. He goes to the book of Deuteronomy. And he reads in, in Deuteronomy a long list of laws against all these kinds of things. And then he comes down to chapter 21, verse 23, and he reads this cryptic little verse. He says, anyone hung on a tree is under God's curse. What? How could a Messiah break a law? How could a godly Messiah take the place of the ungodly and be cursed how could a Messiah bear the consequences of an ungodly person? And then it dawns on him. He says, oh my gosh, this is God bearing the consequence for the actions of the ungodly throughout time and space. This is God having put God's self underneath the law in the place of a, a lawbreaker. This is God taking the curse. And by the way, this is the, the answer to what Gilligan's girlfriend is looking for. This here is the clearest picture of hell that you will ever see. This is hell right here. This is sin taken into the extremity. This is the end of our humanity pushed to the extreme. This is the curse raging against God's good creation. And it's the creator who absorbs it for us. Oh my gosh. There God hangs for every dictator. There God hangs for every torturer, every abuser, every racist, every murderer, every thief, every gospel, gossip, every fornicator, every miser. Now Paul understands. Here God hangs for everyone who ever broke God's law, for everyone who ever will break God's law. This is the consequence for humans' actions in rebellion against God. That curse has now fallen, and it's falling on God. Not on them, not on us. Well, this is rectification. This is what Paul means when he talks about rectification. This is when he understood it. This is cosmic justice, God making the world right. What but the weight of the infinitely good, beautiful, and loving creator could possibly atone for the endless injustice of his creation? This is not about impunity. This is the end of impunity. At this point in history, there's a shift in the moral balance of the universe from the ungodly to God. And when you and I look to the cross, we should be encouraged. We should be. 
Here we see that the violence of injustice has finally been answered, and we, sh- and we have hope. We should be chastened, actually. Here we see the destructive power of our sin devastating our Savior. God says, you keep sitting, this is where it leads. We should be chastened and repentant. And we should be activated. Here we see the beginning of the end of injustice. And here we're commissioned to be agents of justice, commission. And finally, by the way, let me just say that it's this cross that will bring justice to Birmingham, Alabama, one day. Did you know that it was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. who gave the eulogy for these girls that died September 15th, 1963? Can you just imagine that room? Just imagine Dr. King stepping up in that room and it was just three days later, the walls were still torn apart. You could see the tears. You can feel the outrage in that room. If you, listen, you read that speech or listen to it, you could tell the outrage is in Dr. King as well. But here's what he says. Don't strike back. Don't strike back. He says, we must not despair. We must not become bitter. Nor must we harbor the desire to retaliate. Why? Well, he said, God still has a way of wringing good out of evil. He's talking about the cross of Jesus Christ. He's calling that community to become agents of justice. Without this cross, they couldn't do it. But with this cross, they can join Jesus in what he's doing, and so can we. You see, this is the insight of Dr. King. He says, if a victim will look with hate directly at her perpetrator, she will become like him. But if a victim looks to the cross and then to the perpetrator, the victim will see the consequences taken, that desire to exact a cost, to curse the perpetrator. It goes away because we see that it is absorbed on the cross. And now she is left with the work, and it is hard work, but the work of blessing. That's what the left hand of Jesus is inviting us to. And by the way, that's what's happening to the woman who's being woken up at 3 a.m. to confess her sin at the cross. She's beginning to see, as she says, and to feel and to do things that are freeing and loving for me and the people around me. Let's join her. Would you pray with me? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, how when we pause to look at the cross, we realize you have invited us into the deepest of all mysteries. It is a mind-bending, awe-inspiring mystery that we behold when we see our Savior on the cross. Thank you for dying on the cross for our sin and to make the world right. Thank you for the hope and inspiration that it gives us, that it has given people throughout the ages. And may it continue to give us right here in our own troubled times, in our own troubled city. Pour out your Holy Spirit. The spirit of the crucified Messiah might flow through us and that we might be your people, a people of blessing today. In his name we pray, amen.